Welcome to this series from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. Today, uh, the, the message is it's kind of an unusual message that I'm going to bring. Uh, you probably know this, but, but when you're reading your Bible, 30% roughly of your Bible is prophecy. Right? Uh, we preach on it about 1% of the time. <laughs> probably not exactly what God had in mind. Uh, the reason for prophecy that, that I, I think hits home today is there are just hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. And it really takes the Bible and sets it apart and proves it to be a supernatural book. Right? It's important. I was thinking about 2 Thessalonians this week. Now, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. This is what he says. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I kept on telling you these things. And he's talking about the end time events that are going to happen in Israel. And 2,000 years ago, he kept on telling the Thessalonians, look, don't forget that this is going to be happening. So today, I hope to talk to you about the future events in Israel, Russia, and Syria. Right? According to Bible prophecy. And I don't know if I'm going to get everywhere I want to go, but that's my, that is my goal. Right? In Romans 1, verse 16, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the non-Jew. Now, notice the gospel is to who first? It's to the Jew first. Now, now today in the church world, we, we, we tend to totally ignore that, but the gospel is to the Jew first. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews, All right? Now, in order to understand God's end time plan, to understand end time events, we have to take a look at the Jewish people and at Israel. So we're gonna go to Genesis chapter 12 to begin with today. I want to read verses one through three. Verses two and three, you, you, with, without understanding these verses, you cannot understand God's end time plan or end time events. You, you will look at what's going on in the world today and it will not make sense to you. But if you understand Genesis 12, two and three, you will understand what's going on in the world today because all of it goes back to these two verses and a couple of other verses in the book of Genesis. All right, Genesis 12, verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out from your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. Now, verse two, I will make you a great nation. That nation is Israel, all right? Now, when we read it, we just kind of read over it and we go, I'll make you a great nation, all right? The word great there in the Hebrew doesn't just mean great. It means premier above all others, right? So let me put it like this. When Jesus comes back, how I many know he is coming? Every New Testament author, without exception, they might just write one chapter, right? But every one of them talks about Jesus' return, right? When Jesus arose from the dead, he's spending time with the disciples, and this is what they said. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus didn't say, no, we're not gonna do that. He said, it's not for you to know the time. He said, or the season. He said, it's gonna happen. 
He said, it's just not where you need to focus right now. You, you are not going to know the time or the season that it's going to happen today. So he said, I will make you a great nation. When Jesus comes back, Israel will be the premier nation on the face of the earth. Not the United States, n- not Europe, not Russia, not China. Israel will be the premier nation on the face of the earth. Jesus comes back and where does he rule and reign from? From Israel, from Jerusalem. All right. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You may have heard, maybe heard this, said this before. Uh, it was right around the year 2000 when three major magazines put Abraham's picture on their cover the same week. Now, listen, if you've been dead for 4,000 years and everybody's putting your picture on the cover of your magazine, it's because your name is great. Right? Your name's great. He said, I will make your name great. Right? Now, <clears throat> said, you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now, if this is not underlined in your Bible, mark it somehow on your tablet. All right. This is God's State Department's foreign policy right there. Right? God's State Department foreign policies. I will bless those who bless Israel. I will curse those who curse Israel. And then a messianic prophecy, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we just skip a couple of chapters and you get to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God comes to to Abraham and Abraham says, God, I know you said all this stuff, but how can I know for sure that you're going to do what you said to me? And God says to Abraham, he said, "Now, now get some animals and cut them in half and put them on some altars. Now, we read that and we think, weird, barbecue, maybe, you know, that's what we think. But when Abraham heard that, he knew exactly what God was saying to him. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And the practice was to divide the animals. And then the two people would walk through that. Like, like, suppose this is an altar. This is an altar over here. And you walk in between them, right? And you walk around them. And as you do, you make promises to each other, right? Now, most people today only enter into one covenant in their entire lifetime, right? And that's the covenant of marriage. And how many of you know what you do at a marriage ceremony? You make promises to each other, right? I'm going to love you for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. What are you doing? You're making promises, right? So Abraham knows what God is talking about. He said, we're going to make a covenant right here and we're going to walk through these pieces. You know, and when they would walk through, they'd just be literally, their feet are just covered in blood and they're making promises to each other. So Abraham knows what God is talking about, right? So he does that. And then the Bible says, Abraham falls asleep. Okay. And while he sleeps, The Bible says that a smoking furnace and a burning torch pass through the pieces, right? So Abraham is sleeping and while he's sleeping, two characters show up and those characters, they they go through these pieces and they're walking through the pieces, blood's all over their feet and they're making promises, all right? Now, who said, now Abraham, listen, 
It says in Genesis, on the same day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham. This is what it says in the New Testament. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as to many, but as to one and to your seed who is Christ. So Jesus is the flaming torch. And Jesus is walking through the pieces with God the Father. And as they do, God the Father is making promises to Jesus. And Abraham gets in on it because Jesus is his representative. Now, I just want to ask you a question. If, If God makes promises to Jesus, how many of you think he's going to keep them? We should someday do a whole service on the promises that he made. A number of them are found in the book of Psalms, all right? But here, listen, he said this. He said, to your descendants, Abraham's descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It's the land of the Kenites, the Kenzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizim, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershgashites, and the Jerbites. Now he says, I'm going to give them all this land. So let me just show you a picture of what Israel looks like today. That's what Israel looks like today. All right. Here's the land that God promised to Abraham and Jesus when he walked through the pieces. How many know it's a bit bigger? That is the land that Israel will have when Jesus rules and reigns. They will have everything that God promised. Right? Now, here's kind of the picture that I want you to get here, that things that are happening today in the Middle East, you and I think of as coincidences, they're not coincidences, right? God is fulfilling the promises that he made. He is fulfilling his covenant, right? Again, in the 17th chapter, and I'll establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you and their generation, for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you, to your descendants after you. Right? Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. Right? I'll give to your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. I'll be their God. Now, God takes this so seriously right, that he prophesies in Joel what he's going to do when nations do not do or do not treat Israel and the Jewish people as they should. Joel chapter three, verse one. For behold, and in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Now this is talking about the day that we live in. I will also gather all the nations. Now bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We got a picture, valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, it's also referred to in the Bible as the valley of Jezreel of Megiddo and the Valley of Armageddon. Anybody ever heard of it, right? Beautiful, beautiful valley. All right, Uh, this picture right here is taken from the top of Mount Carmel and uh, over to your right, you've got the Mount Gilboa where Saul and his sons were killed when they fought the Philistines. Over to the left is Mount Tabor, which many Bible scholars believe was the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, the interesting thing is you get to Israel and then everything is right there. I mean, and it just makes the, the Bible just come alive. He says, I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Armageddon. I'll enter into judgment with them there. So this is the purpose of Armageddon, to judge them 
on account of my people, the Jews, my heritage, Israel, whom they scattered among the nations and also they divided up my land. Armageddon, the purpose of Armageddon is to judge nations for how they have treated the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. That is the purpose. What God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It stands today. And there should be no such thing as an anti-Semitic Christian. Your your Messiah is Jewish. Mary, Jesus' mother, is Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. All of your heroes in the Bible are Jewish. You get it? We just kind of get in on it. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's us. All right. Okay. Continuing on a minute. Napoleon was, was at, the, at uh, the Valley of Jezreel in 1799. He made, this, he made this statement as he stood in Megiddo, which is a little old town. It's really no more than a mound today. He said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces in this vast plain or valley. There is no place in the world more suited for war than this. It's the most natural battleground in the whole earth. Now, going to Ezekiel chapter 36, I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries and I'll bring you into your own land. Nearly 50 times the Bible prophesies the Jewish people would be dispersed throughout the earth. But in the last days, God would bring them back to their own land. In 70 AD, Titus with the 5th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions goes to Israel and literally destroys the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Destroyed. They crucified over a million Jewish people, right? Sent nearly 100,000 into slavery and literally Israel ceased to exist for 1,878 years. No Israel anywhere. It's really interesting that we refer to it as replacement theology, but even many of the great reformers, Calvin, Luther, they looked at the Bible's prophecies about God bringing Israel back. And they said, that's impossible. It's impossible. So all that must mean, those are just promises to the church, all right? And, and I understand how they did that 500 years ago. But today, all you need to do is look at a map. Look at a newspaper. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He dispersed them. And then in the last days, he has brought them back to their own land. Understand, 1,878 years, that's a long time. Right? But God took those Jewish people and kept them separate. And then finally brought them back to their own land. When Mark Twain in the late 1860s went to Israel, he wrote this. He says, he said, we never saw a human being on the whole route as we pressed on towards Jerusalem. The further we went, the hotter the sun got, the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape becomes. There is hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil have almost deserted the country. Jerusalem is lifeless. I would not desire to live there. It's hopelessly dreary, heartbroken land. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fetters its energies. 
Palestine is so desolate and unlovely. Can the curse of deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workday world. It was desolate. And it was desolate until the people that God gave that land to returned to the land. And when God brought the Jewish people back to the land, things began to change. Ezekiel 36, 35. So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And when we go to Israel in about two or three months, those that are coming with us, I mean, we get there and it is just absolutely amazing. You, you drive through those fields and they are absolutely beautiful. What was desolate? That whole valley of Armageddon was nothing but a wasteland when the Jewish people came there. And now it, is the, it produces more food per acre than anywhere on the face of the earth. All right? What was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And he says, the waste, desolate, ruined cities, they're now fortified and inhabited. I think we've got some beautiful pictures of, of what the landscape looks like now. Now, notice it says that those, those, those cities that once existed, that they were just in ruins. He said, now they're fortified and inhabited. You know, almost without exception, every single settlement that the Jews build, they build on the ruins of an ancient city. One of those is Ephrata. Now, Ephrata is right across from Bethlehem. It's where Rachel died. It's where Boaz and Ruth met. In fact, if you go to the park, they show you the exact spot where Boaz and Ruth got married, right? Absolutely beautiful, beautiful city. As modern as any place that you have ever been, all right? They are now inhabited, which is exactly what God said would happen. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord, for I rebuilt the ruined places. I replanted. And again, that reforestation program that Israel has uh, has absolutely changed the climate in Israel as they've just planted and planted. Re, the, the, the reforestation, that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I've spoken, I will do it. Then you come, the next chapter is Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the chapter about the valley of dry bones. Most of us that went to Sunday school, we, we've heard about dry bones. How many of you sang the dry bones song? We're not gonna sing it, but some of you remember that. All right. But God shows the prophet Ezekiel a valley and it is full of bones and they are very, very dry. And God says to the prophet, can these bones live again? And the prophet looked at him and he said, God, he said, only you know if they could live again because they are so dry. And God said, prophesy to those bones. And the bones came together and he prophesied again and muscle and sinew and flesh came on the bones. And then God said, prophesy again and breath comes into the bones. He says in verse four, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus said the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded, breath came into them. They lived, they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Now, by the way, God tells him, and I'm gonna read the verse in just a moment, that those dry bones are the whole house of Israel. It's interesting, it's the whole house. You gotta remember that. He says they're an exceeding great army. Right now, there are 126 armies in the world that are raided. Israel is rated as number 16, a little bitty nation the size of New Jersey, all right? And, and I believe because of Bible prophecy that that number is going to continue to rise. And he said, this is the whole house of Israel, the whole house. 
Now that's why I have to refer to our day. In 931 BC, Israel was divided. When David's grandson, Rehoboam, became king, he said, I'm gonna increase your taxes. And the people revolted and 10 tribes left and made Jeroboam king. And David's family was left with two tribes and there were the 10 tribes. Now they never reunited, never until 1948. You go to Israel today and there are Jews there from every single tribe. But there was never a time until 1948 when they all came together. He said, they are the whole house of Israel. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you to the land of Israel. I really believe that this is a prophecy talking about the the death camps of Germany, the Holocaust. You know, we had the the Jewish people, over 6 million Jewish people were were murdered by Adolf Hitler in the death camps. And and when when, uh, they were were liberated, they literally looked like walking skeletons, right? But what happened is those people, they are the people who went to Israel. As God said, he said, I will bring you up out of your graves. And that is what he has done. Now, I've been trying to get to Ezekiel chapter 38, Right, so here we go. Ezekiel 38, verse two. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, Gog is a man, one man. All right. He is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Today, we might call him a president. We might call him a prime minister. He might be a dictator. But God says, I'm against you. How many of you know when God is against you, it can look good, but it's really bad. He says, I'm against you. He said, I want to talk to you for a moment. Now, now let, me, let, me, let me say this. During church history, the churches almost always thought they knew who the Antichrist was. Right? For a lot of people thought it was going to be Nero. Then they thought it was going to be Commodus. Then they thought it was going to be different emperors. Uh, and more recently, people thought the Antichrist was Hitler. They thought it was Mussolini. Now, for sure, Hitler was a type of the Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist. All right? Now, the Bible tells us where Gog comes from, all right? And he comes from the far north, right? Now, if you take a line from Jerusalem and go straight up, you, 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 you almost hit Moscow, right? And Bible scholars are almost all in agreement that this is talking about a leader who will someday lead Russia, all right? Now, today we have Putin sitting there and, and somebody says, is he, is he him? Is, is he the prince? Is he Gog? I will say that he is without a doubt a type of Gog. He might be, but he is certainly a type of Gog. All right. Now, continuing. In fact, we got a picture of him here. Don't we have a picture of, there he is. 
U.S. nuclear war fears. Uh, Vladimir Putin warns America. Uh, he's talking about World War III. He's talking about a nuclear exchange. All right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that he is definitely at least a type of this person the Bible talks about. Now, continuing on in verse five, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them. All of them with shields and helmets. Gomer with all its troops, the house of Togomar from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Now, we can put some modern names to all of those nations, right? And uh, show you who they would be today, right? Now, those are ancient names, but we can put modern names with them, all right? And we would have Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon, the Gaza Strip, Right? We would have Syria, northern Iraq. Right? Those would be the modern names for those very same places. Right? Now, continuing on as you read, the Bible talks about them coming. It says, prepare yourself, be ready. You and all of your companies that are gathered about you, be on your guard. And he says, I'll turn you around. I'll put a hook in your jaw and I will lead you out. With your army, horses, horsemen, splendidly clothed, a great company with butler, shield, and all of them handling swords. Somebody says, well, that sounds like something from a long time ago. You know, we just put modern names to the nations. Let me give you some modern names for the weapons. We've got tanks. We've got armored personnel carriers. We've got AK-47s. We've got handheld uh, rocket launchers. And he says, and after many days, you will be visited in the latter years. When is this going to take place? After many days in the latter years, you will come into the land that was brought back from the sword, gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, talking about Israel becoming a nation again, which had long been desolate. Today, it no longer is, but it was. Even 70 years ago, it was. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. Notice it's in the latter years. Other translations say in the end of years or the end of days. And he says, you will ascend. This is their plan. You'll ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all the troops and many people with you, thus said the Lord God on that day, you shall, it shall come to pass that a thought will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock, good, and dwell in the midst of the land. People have often said, well, where is the United States in prophecy? It's in the next verse. Ezekiel 38, verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarsus and all the young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock, goods, and great plunder? Most Bible scholars identify Tarsus as the EU, right? It talks about the lions, the young lions. How I many, Britain in Bible prophecy is the lion. The young lions are the nations that came out of Britain, which would be New Zealand, Australia, Canada, United States, South Africa. And it says the young lions, they'll say, what are you doing? What are you doing? But we do not come to Israel's defense. The United States will say something, but we will do nothing. 
We are among those young lions and uh, we object, but we do not stand with Israel. Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company, a mighty army. You'll come against my people Israel like a cloud. You'll cover the land and it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me and be hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. God is saying he's going to get glory. In fact, God actually says that in that day, his anger will arise in his face and God fights for Israel, right? There's an earthquake, there's confusion and uh, Israel is spared, comes out victorious because God fights for them. And it appears, most Bible scholars believe that there is some sort of a nuclear exchange that takes place, right? It says, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. And they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury the bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bones, he will set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Literally, this is what happens when there's a nuclear exchange and there's going to be a cleanup. It is just a, it's a description of what we do today. Now, I want to take three more minutes and I want to talk about what's going on in Syria today. Of course, this, this could be the, the way that, that uh, Gog comes down into the Middle East because Syria is part of the group that we find in Ezekiel chapter 38. Right? In Isaiah 17 in verse 2, it says, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and will become a ruinous heap. Now, Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city on planet Earth. There's older cities like Jericho, but it was not continually inhabited. There were literally centuries where Jericho was not inhabited. But Damascus has been continually inhabited. But the Bible says that there's going to come a day when it will cease from being a city and will simply be a ruinous heap. And in that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken brow and an uppermost branch because they left because of the children of Israel and there will be desolation. It says the reason that this happens is because of the children of Israel. We can say it this way, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, right? In verse 14, it says, then behold at evening time, there's trouble. And before morning, he, Damascus, is no more. So in the evening, there's trouble. And when morning comes, the city of Damascus is a ruinous heap and no longer exists, all right? Now, the, the, uh, the 14th verse, the last part, tells us why it happened. It says, this is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Israel is going to retaliate against Syria at some point. Right? The reason Damascus ceases to exist is because of the children of Israel, all right? Now, Everybody knows that Syria has biological and chemical weapons. And Israel has more than once told Syria, if you attack with chemical or biological weapons and our people die, we will respond with tactical nuclear weapons. 
And the only thing that I know of that we have a city intact in the evening and it be gone by morning is a tactical nuclear weapon. And it appears that that's going to happen. And it's going to be in retaliation for what Syria has done. Many Bible scholars believe that this is actually going to be a part of what happens in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, right? But all of it goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, where God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Where God said, I will give to you and your descendants all of this land. He said, well, you're passing today as a stranger. And we really do not understand what's going on in the world today without understanding God's promises to Abraham, to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. We look at the Middle East and we think that this is a political thing. I'm going to tell you right now, no politician can solve this problem because it's a spiritual problem. It has spiritual roots. It's a spiritual problem. Somebody said, well, it's because Israel, the Jewish people are there and, and the Palestinians don't want them there. That hasn't got anything to do with it. Over, over 2,600 years ago, the prophet Ezekiel said, because you have had an ancient hatred, and it's the hatred of the children of Israel. It was an ancient hatred 2,600 years ago. It is still there today. And it, it is fueling what we see in the Middle East. But the end result, is that God is going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants. It's the promise he made to Jesus that they are going to possess that land. And uh, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and he is going to reign. There is going to be no peace that comes through some political method until the Prince of Peace, Jesus, comes back. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? The Bible teaches that not good people, but forgiven people go to heaven. That every single person is welcome. That everyone gets in the same way. That every single person can meet the requirements. And Jesus told it to us like this. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one come to the Father except through me. All of your efforts can never make you right with God. All of my efforts can never make me right with God. There's just one way to be right with God and that's through Jesus. So Jesus said you must be born again. It means you need to give him all of your heart and all of your life. And if you have not consciously given him all your heart and life, you still have it. He's not a thief to steal it, a manipulator to trick you. You need to give him your heart and life. You need to be born again. Now, we think, well, I know about God. I know about Jesus. We all do. We've celebrated Easter and Christmas. But salvation, listen, is not about what you know. It's not about your head. Salvation is about your heart. It's about your heart. Have you given him all of your heart in all of your life? He said, you must be born again. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says know that you have everlasting life. And if you don't know where you stand with God, you don't know you're forgiven right with God on your way to heaven, you're not where you should be with God. 
you need to do this. You, you need to be born again. You need to give him all of your heart and all of your life. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to count to three. And when I say three, if you're not where you should be with God, I want you to lift your hand. We're going to pray. God's going to meet you in this place. You're going to give him all of your heart, all of your life. You're going to leave forgiven right with God. Now, as you lift your hand, the first thing that you're saying is, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I'm coming to Jesus to be saved, to be forgiven. One. You lift your hand, you're saying today, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm giving him all of my heart, all of my life. He's going to give me the abundant life that he came to give me. Two. Get ready. You lift your hand, you're saying today, I'm receiving Jesus by faith. I'm giving him my heart, my life, all of it. He's going to come into my heart, blood wash me from my sin, make me a new person on the inside, a part of your family on my way to heaven. Three, lift it up. Say, pray with me. Pray with me. I'm not right. I want to get right. Thank you. I see that hand. See that hand. And 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 that hand. That hand. In the balcony. Lift him high. Just say, pray with me, Pastor. I am not where I should be. I want to get right. All right. Thank you. God bless 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 you. I'm going to ask everybody to stand right now. Nobody moving unless it's necessary. Now, if you lifted your hand, would you please look right at me? Would you move to the aisle that's nearest you? Make your way right down here. Bring the person you came with. Bring your coat. Bring your Bible. Bring your purse. Bring whatever you need. But make your way down. We're going to pray. And God is going to meet you right here in this place. And we're going to say amen in just a moment. When we say amen, your past is going to be gone. You're going to be right with God. You're going to be on your way to heaven. Come on, make your way down. Grab that person next to you that lifted their hand. If you're in the balcony and you come down, we'll wait for you. All right. Well, we're going to pray. This is literally the most important decision that you will ever make in your entire life. This will change your destiny. Jesus said, confess me before men. I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Come on down. Jesus went to a cross for us. The least we can do is make a confession. Receive him. Give him our heart. Give him our life. Awesome. Now, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. This is what it said. It says, whosoever. That means this will work for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. This is going to work for every one of you. We'll call on the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to call on his name the way the Bible shows us to. And this is God's promise, will be saved. When we say amen, you're going to be forgiven. You're going to be right with God. He's going to make you new on the inside. All right. Everybody take one hand, put it over your heart, lift your other hand towards heaven. Let's pray together. Make these words your own. Say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he rose again. I give him all of my heart, all of my life. I'm going to live for him every day. And I thank you. You've heard my prayer that your blood washed me from my sin, that my past is gone. I'm forgiven. You make me new on the inside, a part of your family, a part of your kingdom today. 
and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this series. For more information, call 616-534-4923 or visit us at reslife.org.